Good evening, welcome, and we can get right into Psalm 23. I don't have any other commentary on the day or anything. I hope you're continuing to pray, though. Uh, Continue to pray for revival, not just on Sundays. Um, I saw a tweet, uh, someone said, it seems like the entire human population is collapsing all at one time. I saw someone, and and I got thinking, Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man, when literally everyone on earth had lost their mind except for one family. Isn't that amazing? So we're kind of heading that direction. But we have Psalm 23, and we've been talking about how the Psalms are here for us to live for the Lord in the real world. And the real world is um, it's not easy to live in, and it's certainly... Uh, all around us and, and uh, seeks to overwhelm us. But um, looking forward to us getting into these six verses together. As we did last week, why don't we stand and read it together? Let's do it old school. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Since it's only six verses, you don't have to stand long. Short passage. Most of you could probably quote this. But it's good to look at the passage even as we read it. Um, starting verse 1. The Lord... I'm going to... Listen to how I read it here. Put yourself in this. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness. You can put this next one in bold. For his name's sake always about the Lord. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Father, we bow before you once again. We humble ourselves here in the middle of this week. Lord, these verses we've read before, but we pray that they would be poured out into our soul as new, as strengthening, as needful, as correction, whatever it may be, Lord. We pray that... uh, we would leave here knowing that you, even more, are our shepherd. And Lord, that we'll live our life for your name's sake. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Welcoming into those of you who are online as well. We've been having people online. So these words are very familiar to most if not all of you here tonight and those that you're watching online. Everybody's heard Psalm 23 probably more times than they can count. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. If these words just right there made up the entire chapter, they would still be powerful. They would still be significant. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. If that was the end, that would mean a lot. Particularly given all the scriptural images of shepherds and sheep. By extension, what we know about shepherds and what we know about sheep. And I'm going to share a little bit more of that in a little bit. Anytime anytime in the Bible that the Lord is our soul anything. My soul anything. Let me give an example. My Savior. My Redeemer. It's personal too. My shield. My salvation. My help, all those are in passages that you can find. It underscores our total dependence. And only the one that truly belongs to God, adopted by God through Jesus Christ, can say, my God, my hope, my deliverer. And here in the 23rd Psalm, my shepherd. My shepherd. Not somebody else's. My shepherd. Now, given our modern society, the 
personal and infinite value of having the Lord himself as your shepherd is rarely appreciated, right? We don't see many shepherds in Chesterfield County. Streets of Richmond. And the nation as a whole. But we're going to examine it. We're going to try and appreciate it. And by the help of the Spirit, endeavor to appropriate tonight our reliance on Jesus as our shepherd. Amen? Try and do all. Lord, help. Lord, we ask that you would help this to take place. That we would appropriate. If you're taking notes, you see the title this evening. It's not a creative title. It's not meant to be. Not on my part anyway. But it's life-giving truth. The Lord is my shepherd. When I was a kid, I wasn't always old. When I was a kid, some of you say, you're not old, you're still a kid. I, it depends, it's all relative. I talk to the teens, they think I'm old. I talk to some of you, you think I'm a kid, and that's okay. I kind of appreciate when some people still think I'm a kid. But, uh, but when I was about seven or eight, in the late 70s, living in Annapolis, Maryland, where I grew up outside the Beltway area there, I had a great aunt that came to live with us. Um, she, lived, she came to live with us for, for a few months. We thought she would live with us for like a year. Turned out to be the final months of her life. She was in her early 90s. Uh, she had lived uh, most of her life in Georgetown, Georgetown part of D.C., in a brownstone that today would be worth millions uh, back then. Have we known? Why didn't we hold on to that thing? You know, that kind of thing. Uh, but uh, she lived in Georgetown. Uh, she had been a... Um, she, could, she got to the place where she could no longer take care of herself. Um, she had been a former educator, public school superintendent, married to a U.S. diplomat. Uh, but she had had, by that time, had come down with complete dementia. And she was now living with us. But I didn't know as a seven or eight-year-old a whole lot about dementia. I had heard of it because I, I, I liked watching the news even at the age of seven. So I would heard of it, didn't know a lot about it. But I know that my great aunt would point at me, especially in the evening, and say, that one right there was misbehaving all day at the drugstore, <laughs> at the soda shop. Now, soda shops were long gone by the late 70s when she was pointing at me and saying, that one was really misbehaving at the soda shop. I'm, you know, I had never been to a soda shop. They were long gone by then. She was, going, she was back in 1920 or 1930. They were still big even in World War II. I had been outside with my friends all day. There was no way I was at the soda shop. And she hadn't left the chair she was in. She stayed in that chair the whole day. And she had me mixed up with some child from her past. But I really was no little angel. I really was misbehaving most of the time. So probably she saw something because I used to, she was incredibly thrifty her whole life. I would put a dollar bill just out of her reach because I knew that, and, and then I would like, she would look around to see if anyone was looking and go to grab it, and then I would just kind of, so I'm, I'm still paying for these kind of sins. <laughs> I did so many things, I look back, I'm like, I'm pro- that's, I, I, I'll just be riding down the road someday and I'll think of something I did in the past, I'm like, I'm, still, I'm probably paying for that one, I'm probably paying for that one, I'm probably paying for that, and there's consequences for these things. But she couldn't remember anyone's name, um, for vast periods of her life. But I remember she would, out of the blue, start quoting the entire 23rd Psalm word for word. Just out of the blue. Just start quoting it. Uh, She didn't regularly attend church um, for much of her life. I believe my mom had a chance to kind of lead her in a prayer, and I I believe God really could save people even in dementia, even in the last days of their life, because that's the kind of Savior we have. But... um, but that passage was so familiar that it was still embedded. No other passage. That was the one that she could quote. But the Lord, he doesn't want us just to be able to quote this passage or know the words, but to fully live it out. Because a lot of people can quote. There's unsaved people that know this passage that have never lived a day of it. Jerry Rankin, in his uh, devotional, In the Secret Place, a pilgrimage through the Psalms, says this about the 23rd Psalm. Many devotional books have been written on these verses. No other scripture passage is quoted so often. I would say John 3.16 would be the other one. There's a danger in that which is most familiar, and that would apply to John 3.16 as well, uh, losing its meaningfulness to us. Wouldn't you agree? Familiarity can just, ah, it doesn't mean that much anymore. 
But there is indeed a wealth of blessing and application in this graphic image of the shepherd loving and caring for his sheep. David, as we know, King David was a unique man in history and in all the scriptures. He wrote songs. He wrote poetry. He was a mighty warrior covered in blood that killed thousands. He became king of Israel. He was a great leader. He had a tragic fall into sin. Tore his family into pieces. But he had a gracious restoration too, didn't he? One thing, that make, one thing about David you, we can all learn from is his repentance is so real it shows us what real repentance looks like. But among all the facets of David's life, he began his life as a shepherd. We all know that, right? He began his life as a shepherd. He wasn't always a mighty warrior. He wasn't always a king. He wasn't always known for being this great leader. But he was intimately aware, and he never left his understanding, he was intimately aware of sheep and shepherding. Sheep and shepherding. Nathan even used, remember, when he came to accuse him, he even used the sheep analogy with him. As you read the scriptures, you can see that God clearly carved out a role in the whole of scriptures for shepherds in the Bible. I mean, I, God has this divine carved out role for shepherds in the scripture to convey the picture of what? How the Lord leads his people. Abraham was a shepherd. Moses comes along. He's a shepherd. Finally, King David is a shepherd. That's very significant that Abraham, Moses, and David were all three shepherds. Because not everyone else in the Old Testament was. But those three are. Significant because they are the three most revered of the patriarchs among all the Jewish people. Abraham, Moses, David. The three most revered of the patriarchs. You could also throw Jacob in as number four because he bears the name Israel. But... But he was also a shepherd. So, uh, but these revered patriarchs among the Jewish people, they had the common background of first being shepherds of literal sheep. Smelly, dirty sheep. All of these patriarchs that I mentioned, plus Jacob as well, that they had real literal sheep matted, messed. You know, kind of, you've seen how dirty sheep are. Before they led the people of God, before Moses could lead a couple million Israelites through the Red Sea, he had to lead sheep through the desert. And he would lead them to the desert. Now, as I mentioned at the outset, we live in this modern society Sometimes our smartphone is our shepherd. We plug in an address, tells us exactly where to go. It'll even verbally speak to you if you need it to. In a beautiful voice. It's, a, it's a shepherdess, actually, on my phone. It's not a shepherd. Shepherdess is what I have. Speak to me. You can speak to Siri the shepherdess and ask questions like, you know, ah, what year did this happen? How do I make this a recipe? It just guides you without even thinking anymore. You don't even need a brain. Your phone is your brain. Google search it, whatever. Yet God wants us in 2022 to understand what the ancient patriarchs knew and understood. Do you agree with that? I mean, if I said earlier when we were praying, if, if it... If, in our latter days, if it is now, and it definitely is, as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the coming days of the Son of Man, then we would want to return to what Noah is clinging to, not turn to what this world is clinging to. And we would learn a lot more from Moses and Abraham and David than we would from 
the modern day leaders around us, wouldn't we? A little background on shepherds and sheep. At a high level, uh, you probably all know this, but at a high level, sheep would not survive without shepherds. Unless they're in a fenced-in environment with no known enemies at all. Like they can do that in New Zealand and put them in a fenced area. But even still, if you just fence them in with no shepherd, they still develop other problems, which I don't have time to get into. So it's not, that's not a perfect solution. The best solution by far is sheep to have a shepherd, even if they were penned in. For the most part, it's due to the design, the nature, and the constitution of sheep. Here's your eye chart for the night. I've got another one to follow up. But I, I, won't, I can't go through all these in detail. But if you look at these 12 things, and this is not an exhaustive list, you can go out and you can do a lot of searching on attributes of sheep, and you can read it in farming books, you can look at it in devotionals. But, but let's look at some of these and see how much we are like sheep. <laughs> sheep are defenseless. They have no natural defense mechanism whatsoever. They have to be protected. They can't get back on their feet. That's a cliche we use about ourselves, right? I just can't get back on my feet. Literally, my, my youngest daughter was showing me this Pinterest clip, and it has um, uh, a farmer, I think he's in Australia or something like that, and you got this pasture on the left-hand panel pointing the whole time, the farmer from Australia is watching, showing how when his sheep would fall down, they fall upside down, and their legs are in the air, and they cannot turn themselves over until the, not farmer, but shepherd comes and puts them back and then has to hold them in place so they kind of gain their equilibrium and the blood gets back to the right place and everything. And then and only then can you let them go again. And he does that and then two seconds later, that same sheep back on its back again. If they're upside down, they can die on their backs. They literally can suffocate. Sheep cannot, sheep cannot treat themselves if infected or injured, they'll likely die without any help. They lack a sense of direction. It's not just teenagers. Uh, it, they lack a sense of direction. They will wander and get completely lost. Sheep are stubborn. Now we see that we are like sheep. When we get to this point, sheep are stubborn. Many times they'll refuse. Oh, by the way, um, they sometimes refuse to move. They are strong. Sheep are actually strong. If you're not paying attention, they will knock the wind out of you fast. They'll just run through you. They're incredibly strong, but their strength is rarely ever used in any capacity except each other and resisting the shepherd. Does that sound like the body of Christ sometimes, right? They will use their strength on each other and resisting the shepherd. They don't use it against wolves. They don't use it against any other thing, just against each other. They will ram each other. They'll ram their heads into each other, and they'll resist the shepherd. That's the only use of their strength that they... They're slow learners. I relate to this one. They often learn the same painful lesson multiple times. You ever been there? Multiple times. Here we are taking this quiz with the Lord for the 15th time. It's a pop quiz. We should know it by now. Sheep copy other sheep. It's definitely human beings. Bell bottoms, you're wearing them, everyone's wearing them. You know, they're tight skinny jeans, everyone's wearing tight skinny jeans. You know, I just found out mullets are coming back. I'm not bringing that one back. Some of you have seen, I had one years ago, I don't care. I'm not copying that fad ever again. But, you know, people, people copy each other. Keep up with the Joneses. To the point that they'll be in debt just to copy and keep up. Sheep are demanding. They have an insatiable appetite to eat. They will, they will not stop bleeding until the shepherd gets them to food. They will, you think your toddler won't be quiet until you get out oatmeal or something. Sheep will not, they will not stop. They're relentless if they're hungry. Uh, they'll settle for less than best. They will drink a nasty mud puddle unless the shepherd gets them 100 yards down to clean, fresh water. And so will Christians. They will drink 
from the world. And Jesus said, why are you drinking that stuff? Sheep are restless. They rarely feel safe enough to get good deep sleep. You ever been there? I was there last night, counting sheep. Sheep are the same everywhere. On every continent, they're the same. And in every continent, people are the same. Their culture may be different, their, but the, their language may be different, their customs, but the heart is still the same. And lastly, here's the great one. Sheep are valuable. Out of all that, God says, oh, by the way, one last thing. I made them valuable. In spite of all their flaws, God made them valuable because if they're protected and cared for, Abraham was a wealthy man because of sheep. Jacob was wealthy. Isaac was wealthy because of sheep. David became wealthy because of sheep. Why? Because they've always held incredible value to produce wool, milk, cheese, and even soap. And lamb chops. But then that's, that, that's where you lose the metaphor there. Then the, then the sheep became like a chicken. And uh, so... Most of the herds were not, they weren't eating most of the herd. They, in most cases, it was those other things, the wool, the, goat, uh, the sheep's milk, the cheese, all the stuff, uh, the soap, everything. They could be, they, they, lotions, all kinds of stuff are made through. Uh, they're just very valuable if they are handled correctly. And you and I can be incredibly valuable, not because we're not born with any intrinsic, but God places value, and if we yield to the shepherd in all these areas, then we become valuable. You know, a, a horse that's untamed is worthless, and if you try and, you know, hey, I'm going to go pet one down on the Outer Banks, you're liable to be a, have a broken jaw, right? You know, they will kick you in a heartbeat. But if they are they're tamed, then all of a sudden they have incredible value. They can be racehorses, they can pull weight, they can be workhorses, they can be sold. There's no value in an untamed horse. There's thousands of dollars of value sometimes in a trained horse. Sheep, similar in the sense that God, or in our case, the shepherd making us into the flock that's not destroying each other, that's not drinking from the wrong water sources. What about the characters and quali qualities of a, of a good shepherd? Well, put ten, uh, 12 of these up as well. So eye chart number two. Watches vigilant over, vigilantly over his sheep to know everything surrounding them. Understands the needs of the sheep better than the sheep ever could. Amen to that, right? Amen. Sheep don't know their needs. Neither do I most of the time. Lord, I don't... I don't know what to do in this situation. Cares for the sheep and develops close relationships. They know and trust his voice. Will defend the sheep from an enemy attack. Leads the sheep and keeps them moving to find fresh pasture and still water. Still fresh water. Will search out and rescue any sheep that wanders off, even one. Shears the sheep. Sheep don't like being sheared, but shears the sheep and examines for injury and disease. We don't like being sheared either. Jesus said, I will prune you in life. We're also compared to plants. Binds up, applies medicine, and will even carry a sick or injured sheep. And a sheep that keeps wandering, you guys might know, well, they'll even break the legs sometimes and carry them up on their shoulders so the sheep learn never to wander off. But finds a safe place for the sheep to rest and lay down. Sheep, uh, they're so anxious, they have a hard time laying down. They have, to have, they have to end up having implicit trust in the shepherd that when he lays them down, they have not the faintest fear at all. If they do, they will toss and turn. Comfort sheep when they are anxious, stressed, and fearful. That's their nature. That sound familiar, everyone? It's their nature to be worrying and stressing and anxious, fearful. Number 11, this is an important one. Keeps the sheep from fighting and injuring one another. Jesus has to step in between Christians all the time, even between denominations and between churches and between people, individuals, relationships. Imagine Jesus speaking aloud. Why are you fighting and destroying one another? Of course, that's written in the New Testament. And lastly, 12, dis disciplines and corrects the sheep. 
often for the same thing many times. I've been there too. But praise God, Jesus is the good shepherd that we, we've been studying that aspect, one of his titles there in John chapter 12. Now with these things in mind, we're going to look now briefly at these six familiar verses. And uh, it's my prayer that we would leave tonight refreshed and encouraged and corrected even by these six verses. And especially um, that in my prayer for all of you and myself as well, that you would leave really with that bottom half of verse 5 that you would know that the Lord is anointing your head with oil and your cup running over. Just sensing the goodness and mercy of God uh, in your life. Although the sheep and the shepherd metaphor is essential to the meaning of this psalm and is essential to Jesus' parable when he talks about the sheep gate and himself uh, and other places in Scripture too. Although the sheep and shepherd metaphor is essential this psalm and, and in the Scriptures in general, the, uh, these verses, of course, have other relevant meaning to our personal walk in this world. And, and we'll look at some of those things in these verses. So back to verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want... Everyone on earth is a sheep. But the question is, are we Jesus' sheep? Who do we belong to? Is Christ your personal Savior? Your personal shepherd? Because he's your Savior, he becomes your shepherd. In John 10, 14, we covered this a few weeks back in John 10, 14. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known by my own. Not only that he knows the sheep, and the sheep know him. I, of course, want to know my shepherd way better. I still... And, and the, you know, we have a capacity in eternity. We don't know how. God may allow us for all eternity to get to know him better. And because he's infinite, that can never stop. That's a, that, that, our mind, the fact that God has no beginning, no end, we just don't understand that concept. But I do understand that, you know, uh, my wife and I will be married 28 years at the end of this month. And I know that I can get to know her better than I already do. That there's a capacity still. Matter of fact, a lot of headroom. She would say for me, uh, more than he thinks. You know, uh, uh, well, he thinks this, but it's really this, you know, whatever. But, but I want to, I, I know I'm known by the Lord, but I, and I know I know him, but to know him more. Uh, we don't just know him, though. It says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And it's interesting that it says, I shall not want. Um, it's, it's David saying, almost like we shouldn't want. It's possible to get to that place of not wanting, but I'm not. David's not expressly saying here, "I never want." I shall not. We can we, that verse we can relate to more than the Lord is my shepherd. I never want. It doesn't say that. I shall not want. It, it's it's the place of getting to, not wanting, not coveting. Discontent goes away. We don't just know him, but we're coming to know him in a more personal way, and we're coming to know more contentment. More contentment. Um, you can be content here tonight. You know, you can be content. Matter of fact, when you get to heaven, you'll realize you can know this by faith now. So you say, Lord, I'm just going to receive this. You can know it now, but when you can get to heaven, you'll know that sitting under the 23rd Psalm, I guarantee you God will say this is right. Sitting on the 23rd Psalm is better than if you were at Morton's right now enjoying a free $300 meal with you and your spouse. Amen. Say, but, I, but that, would, that sounds awesome. If I, was, if I had the choice, I'd swap right now. Then you're still learning contentment. Because God would say, you, you, you chose poorly. My word is greater than a steak that you'll still be hungry again tomorrow morning all over again. But the word can actually go way deeper in your soul. Because everything we eat for flavor is, is to get a pleasure in the soul. Taste buds just go to the mind. 
Any lack of contentment we have is also some level of us still shepherding ourselves. Any lack of contentment we still have, and we all have it, because we're all still shepherding ourselves in certain areas. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to, little by little, in the course of your lifetime, you're going to stop shepherding yourself there, stop shepherding yourself there, stop shepherding yourself there, and all those things are going to pop up and blossom contentment. David said, I shall not want. I'm not there yet, but I know that I have a shepherd who can lead me to contentment. There's also the mindset here that everything you currently have is what God intends for you to have. I shall not want. If only I had, God's like, I already know that. If I thought you desperately needed that, you would have it. Verse 2 he makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. This passage has ministered to me and counseled me more times than I can count. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. I don't know about you guys, but I don't lay down easily. Never have from the day I was born. My mom can attest to this. Every pair of jeans I had had patches on them. I mean, you know, just like, and they were the iron-on kind. You know, that was the way we did it in the 70s. You got an iron-on patch on both knees. When that one was done, you got another patch, and I just kept swapping them out. Everything. I didn't like to go to bed. I didn't want to take naps. Nothing. Uh, but I'm not easily, uh, that I'm, oh, the older I get, the more you mature in the Lord. I'm not easily stilled. I tend to find rapids rather than still waters. But this is why we need a shepherd. Amen? God is taming. We're all wild horses to a degree. God is taming everyone and teaching them to be still. Why we need it. He makes me, David's saying him, but you can put yourself in there. Your name makes you lay, lie down. John 10, 27, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. They follow, if his voice says, We're going to lay down, they go lay down. We're going to water, we're going to water. They don't even know where, but they're just following the voice. And Jesus has given his spirit to us, his sheep. We, we have the Holy Spirit that's the voice of Christ speaking to us. He's always going to speak in concert with the Word of God. It's the Spirit of Christ within us that tells us, stop right now and pray. Stop and pray. Be still and know that I am God. Stop and be still. Turn everything up. Sometimes, even if I'm listening to Christian music, there's times where the Lord says, turn it all off and total silence in the car. So I can just meditate on the Lord. And I can tune out. I can pretty much tune out. Well, my hearing isn't so great outside the walls anyway. So I can tune out all the other 18-wheelers and everything else. But just silence. Stop and pray. Feed on His Word. Sometimes, you know, may, may, may not be looking at the Bible, but you can be quoting a verse, chewing on it just like sheep do. Chew on that grass. Chew on that Word. You have to be still for that. And, we, uh, and by the way, we as believers, it's all through the New Testament, well, Old Testament as well, but we should be serving the Lord in such a way, not ourselves, it's all for His namesake, we'll get to that. Uh, we should be serving the Lord, not ourselves, in such a way that we deeply do need, we truly do need rest because we're serving the Lord so, Paul said he was being poured out like a drink offering. We should serve the Lord to the point where we need rest. Our lives should be poured out enough that we need fresh water poured back in. We should need fresh water poured back in. But then to lay down and to have rest and to drink in the Word, well, that has to be a priority of our life. And it has to be led by the Spirit of God. And how, how God wants you to lay down and rest and how He wants you to pour back into you, your time schedule. You have a, we all have different schedules, but the same needs. Amen? Because sheep are the same all over the world. You have the same need of the water of God. You have the same need of the Word of God. You have the same need of the rest. Jesus said, my burden is light. Take my yoke upon you. 
We have the same needs, different schedules. So we say, Lord, you, you, you sheep hear his voice. He's going to show you how and where and when you're supposed to lay down. You're supposed to pour out like... I was talking to Pastor Trevor about, you know, D.L. Moody would pour out for month after month after month and, and all over and just, just expend every last bit of energy he had. Uh, and, you know, millions over the uh, course of his lifetime came to Christ. But, you know, he would get, he would all of a sudden be nothing left. He would go to the farm in New Hampshire and just crash and be rebuilt up and refresh and go back out and do it all over again. You guys have seen Adam's Road. They, they kind of their, their ministry operates kind of like that. But you and I are to operate that way on a weekly. Not all of us are called to itinerant ministries like that. I get that. But there's the same kind of we need to pour out. But that's to be poured back in. That Sabbath rest and times of living water. They're so needful for our minds. They're so needful for, for our body, and for fuel for the long journey. We're here. We're all here to be for the long haul, unless the Lord should call us home. Uh, verse three. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Uh, these first four words, he restores my soul, inform us that when we're trusting the Lord, even, I should say, even if and when, this is very important to understand, even if and when you are really trusting the Lord and you are following him as best you know, nobody's doing this perfect, but as best you know with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, Guess what? There will still be times when your soul will need refreshing and restoring. Even people that love the Lord and are serving the Lord and are meditating on Him and spending time with Him are still getting drained and need their souls restored. Notice it doesn't say, and save my soul. No. This is not saving. The soul has already been saved. David is, is, the assumption here is David already belongs to the Lord. But even if you belong to the Lord, you might be here tonight or watching online and said, man, I belong to the Lord, and I have been just at the altar, at his feet, serving people, loving people, and my soul feels really drained right now, and I'm not sure why. Maybe that's someone here tonight. Why is this? Well, because in these tents, <laughs> in this lifetime, in these still infirmed, imperfect, not glorified bodies, our tanks will go down to empty thousands of times. Just like your car is, you, get, you, you keep refilling it no matter how many times you've had, like this, this surely will be the last time I put gas in. No. Surely not even the last time it's going to be five bucks or whatever. But uh, no, it's going to happen. You'll go down to empty a lot. I'm speaking of the mind and body, um, when you think about the mind and body just getting drained, but it's the soul is that part of our makeup where we actually think. The soul is where we think about what does that verse mean. The soul is where we, do I really want to surrender everything to Jesus? Uh, do I really want to do this for the Lord? Do I really want to love him with all my heart? The, the soul is where the, the mind does this thinking. It does this decision process. It does this surrendering or not surrendering. And it's in the mind, if once we are saved and we have the mind of Christ, we, we're, we're still a little bit perplexed how David could say, my soul needs to be restored. How is it that the mind can become, the mind that's set on Christ can still become discouraged, disturbed, and depleted, just to name a few? You'll have to get the answer to that when you talk to God face to face someday. I don't know how that is, but I know God has allowed it. And David's speaking of it right here. David loved the Lord. And he said, he restores my soul. Restores is plural. Like, like this happens more than once. Like it is an ongoing restoration project. It's like I-95. It's always under construction. It's a forever project on I-64. You come back a thousand years later, they will still have orange cones out there. They'll have made three miles of progress. And in some respects, our heart goes through this, or our soul, I should say. And, and only God can renew and restore your soul. Only God can renew uh, the mind. Only, uh, but even though he's the only one that can renew it, guess, our, guess what our role is? We have to represent our soul to him. Not for salvation, but for 
refreshing, restoring, refilling. We have to represent. How do we know this? Well, I've shared this passage many times, but it always applies in this context. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Of course, we know lambs were put on the altar. Sheep. They weren't the only animals. Obviously, goats and bulls, too. But, uh, but I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God, that you present your bodies. We're presenting our Lord, here's my little sheep body, to you, holy and acceptable God, which, which, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world. In other words, don't look to the world to restore you. It can't. It'll only mess you up more. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God? Only when we say, Lord, I present myself to you, can you go from, I can't, and I know a lot of other pastors that can, that can say this. I can't count how many times that I've probably walked through the doors on, I've, on below empty and represent myself, Lord, and leave with an above, like the gas coming out of the tank. You ever done that when you're just paying attention all of a sudden, you know, and then people are, you can start a fire here. What are you doing? You know, that, that. But at least it's an overflow. And remember, David's going to get to this, my cup running over. You can only do that. You have to, if your cup's empty, guess where you have to place it? At the feet of the Lord. And he's, he makes us keep bringing the cup back there. He, like, he will sit there until you figure out your sippy cup is in the wrong place. <laughs> right? Back to where it goes. So we're also called children of the Lord, too. So that, that also applies. We're sheep, we're children. These all, all these are biblical representations. Now, we do the representing. We represent ourselves. Say, Lord, I was a stubborn sheep. You were telling me to put my cup back there and to represent myself as a living sacrifice. But I wanted to whine for at least three days about this. I wanted to marinate in it. I wanted to be mad about it. I wanted to think it's not fair what you've allowed to happen. I, I shouldn't even have a soul that needs restoring, Lord. And God's like, you can go on, keep doing that. It's not going to refresh your soul. We do the representing. He does the restoring. You cannot restore your soul. You can only present it. You can, there's nothing in this planet you can do. No doctor, no psychiatrist, nobody can restore your soul, only the Lord. Amen? Amen. A stubborn, resistant sheep will not be restored. Doesn't mean that you're lost, but God will have you do laps in the desert until you say, I'm going to represent myself. Me too. It's the yielded, responsive sheep that he recleans. And then they're resettled. In fact, David even said in Psalm 51, verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. He didn't say, Restore to me the gift of salvation. He says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Number one, you can't buy salvation, you can only receive it. Number two, you can't buy the joy of salvation, you can only receive it. And number three, you cannot uphold yourself, you can only be upheld. Everything in that verse is us dependent on God. The older you get and the more mature you get in the Lord, you start to find contentment and safety in that, not resisting that. At a certain point in your life, you probably thought, I can do it all. I don't really need God's help. You see my paycheck? You see, my, uh, see my, how much I bench press? All, the, all these things, right? Why would I need God? You see my good looks? All these things. I'm not saying we feel that way. I, I have felt some of those in the past at times. And God's like, really? You're trusting in those things. But David even says, restore to me the joy. So here's, a, again, now we know that this is after David had fallen into sin, but it doesn't matter. There's times in your life that, whether it's Psalm 23 or Psalm 51, there's times you need your soul restored or the joy restored. You cannot restore it. You can only place the cup in front of the Lord, and he refills it. But there's a way, God, we have to present ourselves surrendered. You cannot, you have to come humbly. Remember I told you that passage in, in Isaiah that's really, the humble will increase in joy. That is, fall at the feet of Jesus. He says, now I'll pour joy into you. This is a, this is a great deal. You're, you're not having to pay money for this. You're simply having to bow the heart. 
There's also the mindset here of the New Testament understanding of being refilled with the Holy Spirit. A refilling of the Holy Spirit. And matter of fact, something we need to grow in as a church is, is and, and this has been on my heart for probably months, is, is maybe times where we have our prayer nights where we not just lay hands on people, but say, hey, do you need a refilling of the Holy Spirit? And then sometimes that's me too. Not just I'm not just saying, well, that's that's all the that's all the people that don't do full time. No, no. We, those of us as pastors, we sometimes we also need a refilling of the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying a receiving the Holy Spirit all new. Oh, you have the seal of the Spirit, but a refreshing. The Bible talks about being filled with the Spirit. And not only do we need this, and maybe some need uh, the restoring Lord even here tonight, but to take the next steps in our life, we have to be restored so we can even take the next steps. Amen? Amen. Like say, Lord, in a physical analogy, if you had gone five straight days without sleeping, you would say, Lord, if I don't get a good night's sleep, I'll be fired tomorrow, but forget that, I'll die on the way to work. Right? Right, right. Make sense? You would have to know. God said, yes, I will restore your sleep so you can even do the job in the first place. So the restoration of our soul is the immediate need, but it also is very much pointing to the next steps. Make sense? So God restored. That's why he says, all right, you work six days. The seventh day, you need to rest, worship. Let me refill you so you're ready for Monday all over again, if you will. Verse 4. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And just when he restores our soul and gives us this infusion of joy, well, that's going to be smooth sailing after that, right? That's not what verse 4 seems to indicate. Verse 3 indicates, verse 4 takes a hard left turn. He's restored my joy. Next turn, valley of death. What? What? I thought the next exit was perpetual bliss. Exit four is valley of death. And God says, you're routing direction. You must take exit four. I, don't, I want to bypass exit four. Verse four. Not hardly. Uh, it's not going to be smooth sailing. We don't know what our valleys will look like and when they'll show up. But we know they'll be there. And we know God allows them. And not only allows them, but even steers us directly into the valleys. Jesus said, in this world you, perhaps maybe some of you, will have tribulation. But cheer about it. No, he doesn't say that. But he says, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Because our problems overcome us. I mean, they can. I usually, I was telling Pastor Trevor this earlier, usually when I encounter a new problem, I feel like a stunned boxer for the first, I'm, I'm like wobbling, I have to like process it all, and I'm like, I'm, this is going to take me out for sure. And then I, then I start to get my bearings spiritually, and then the Lord's like, who are you holding on to, yourself or me? Right? right. right? But our valleys that can feel like death or, or just misery. They can be troubles that come our way. They can be serious health issues. They can be minor health issues. But, but the minor ones add up. They can be mounting, unsolvable problems. It can be the death of a loved one, still grieving, still trying to overcome things like this. It can be stress and worries about just, just a number of things, and they all hit at once. Like, you ever notice that, you, 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 the Lord, I could deal with this if it was only these three things, but 12 of them? And none of them are even related to each other? Like, which one do I pick? And we wonder... Like, I'm sure David wondered many times, we see his groaning throughout the psalm, can I even make it? I've told you before, I don't know which saint said it, someone in Europe, many of the psalms won't make any sense to you until you've gone through some things. Then I'll say, well, that that psalm, I, I used to blow past that one. Now I live in that one. Because all of a sudden, someone wrote something that was like directly from the heart of God to something you may be going through. You know, the third stanza from Amazing Grace, through many dangers, 
toils and snares, I have already come. Right? It's, it's a list of things. Paul said that he was in such a difficult place. And Apostle Paul had this close, intimate relationship. He was even caught up, we believe, to the heavens with the Lord. We know he met Jesus face to face. He might have even spent three full years with him in Arabia. He talked audibly with the Lord on, on, a, on several occasions at least. And Jesus talked directly to him. We see it in the book of Acts. But he was in such a difficult and dangerous place at one point that he felt like death was not only hovering over him, but he says in 2 Corinthians uh, 1, 8, 9, For we do not want you to be ignorant. He's writing to the church. He's trying to tell them, Hey, we, you guys need to understand what we have kind of survived by the grace of God. We don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, which is modern-day Turkey, that we were burdened beyond measure. There's sometimes you're burdened even beyond. You can't even put a calculation on it. Uh, beyond measure, above strength, that we despair even of life. I mean, Paul is so depressed. He's like, I'm not sure I even want to live. Or, or will we live? Yes, we have the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves. But I love how he finishes. But in the God who raises the dead. That's where Paul, I mean, he's like, he was clinging to the resurrection power of Jesus, but barely. I remember one time I told, uh, I was talking to Sam Nadler, who, you know, you guys know Sam's one of my mentors and disciple in the faith. I said, Sam, sometimes I felt like my faith, I was just hanging on certain things by a thread. And he goes, and that's exactly what you hang on to, that thread. The fact that you have a thread is, is the saving faith inside of you. If you don't have saving faith, you don't even have a thread. That's why Jesus said it's a mustard seed. He, he never said, you're going to have a watermelon size. Not even a watermelon seed, which would be much bigger. Paul said the oppression that him and Timothy, because he says, he said at the beginning of that letter, uh, he was, Timothy was with him. Paul said the oppression was so strong that it felt like a death sentence was draped over their souls. I'm kind of paraphrasing what he's trying to convey. And we can be gripped with fear and with doubt to the point where we're like, there's no way we're going to survive this. But notice what Paul, and back to our passage here in the psalm, notice what Paul and David said. David says, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and Paul had been there, Timothy had been there, Moses had been there, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had been there, and we, we talked about them last week. Yea, though I walk in the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. We talked about Jesus last week being in the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach. He was already there when they got there. Your rod and your staff, they come for me. I love this. Now, Paul looked at Jesus, and he immediately said, Oh, I need to snap out of it. Even though we're barely holding on here, Jesus can raise the dead. He can raise himself from the dead. So even if Paul had to be thinking, even if me and Timothy don't survive, he can raise us. Which is what, exactly what Abraham thought about Isaac if he was killed. He said, the Lord can raise him back up. Notice that David and Paul, they look to the shepherd. When he says the one who raised, that's looking to Jesus, the one who raised himself from the dead. When he says, David says, I'm looking uh, and I see his rod and his staff. I, I truly want you all to do this. I, I, I believe it will bless you. Certain something comes up in your life, maybe even this week, say, in your mind, I'm looking right now at the staff of Jesus, him holding it. Because he says, David says, your rod and your staff, they cover me. When you know that Jesus has your back, that any wolf that comes, he'll take out with his staff. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. They looked at the shepherd the one that could take them through the valley. He says, uh, and, and the one who took them into the valley. Jesus is the one that's taken us into the valley. He's the one that will take us through the valley. And you just focus your eyes on his rod and his staff, which is his authority and his supreme power. And he's never failed the sheep once, and he won't fail the sheep ever. And this path, by the way, through the valley of shadow death, is for us to be sanctified, to be conformed to the image of Jesus who went through his own rigorous valley far worse than any will ever go through. 
Learning to look to Jesus, learning to look to his staff, learning to look to his resurrection life, learning to look like Paul said, oh, but I look to the one who has the power to raise the dead. Learning to look to Jesus. And this is something we have to learn. We have to learn to look, even if you've been saved for a year, you're still learning to look to Jesus faster, all the time, consistently. Learning to look to Jesus encourages us, as I've said many times, encouraging means to bring courage, to give courage. And so looking at Jesus encourages, it gives us courage, and it fortifies our faith, it stiffens our back, and it stiffens our resolve in a godly way. Not in a, well, I can do it way, but no, Christ, it's all in front of my Bible. I can do all things through Christ. Who, no, no, that's not one. That, I have that, a different Bible. But anyway, this one is, he began a good work and we completed. That also applies. <laughs> because he, it's, he, it's him doing the work, right? It's him doing the work. He's the one that fortified. He, he helps us to set our face like a flint, just as Jesus' was. It was set like a flint. We talked about that a few weeks back. And he can pour in comfort. The Lord, where he says, uh, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Just like he can pour in joy, he can pour in peace, he can pour in comfort. A big, tall, fresh glass of comfort. Let me just say, I am so encouraged by the path that other saints have taken. I'm encouraged by Paul. I'm, they were real people. David, if they, were not, if they were just fairy tales, I would probably have given up on the faith a long time ago. But the fact that they were just like us, now that and the fact that the Holy Spirit does a transformative work. But I'm saying that God gives us real people for a reason because we can relate. Hey, if David was about his wits and he needed his soul refreshed, I shouldn't think it that strange that I need my soul refreshed. Or Paul, if he needed his soul refreshed. I just, I'm finishing up this book right here, um, Steal Away Homes, Charles Spurgeon and uh, Thomas Johnson. Thomas Johnson was a freed slave, freed after the Civil War. He became a pastor, and he someday meets Charles Spurgeon. It's a true story, the whole thing, both of them. And just fascinating, the incredible things these two men went through. I would have given up for sure, I think. I, there's no way I would have made it, reading their lives. And you have no idea... So the saints that are in heaven looking down there, that, that cloud of witness, and they're saying, hey, we had to live Psalm 23. It was not just words to us. We had to walk every single one of those verses out. All of them. In depth. Verse 5. We're coming to a stretch here. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. So... Out of the valley, you prepare a table. Well, you're still in the valley, but now you have a table in the presence of my enemies. So out of the frying pan and into the fire. <laughs> Exit five is now a table in the presence of enemies. We go further along in our growth of faith and dependence in Jesus. And now he, he says, now you're ready for me to put a table in the presence of enemies. You've grown to the place that you are ready to sit down at a table, smack in front of everyone who wants to kill you. Right between the wolves and the bears and the lions and the leopards and the Philistines and everybody else. It's been well said. I didn't coin it. We're either going into a trial, we're in a trial, or we're coming out of a trial. John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress so vividly illustrates this scriptural truth, but aren't you glad that God owns all the trials? He already owns them. They're already solved from eternity past or eternity future. It doesn't matter. Now understand that David had his enemies. He had the Philistines. He had the Edomites. He had other um, nations around them. He even had family that turned against him. You guys know Absalom wanted him dead, which broke his heart. Paul had his enemies. Lots of them. Roman ones as well as Jewish ones just like Jesus that wanted him dead. Uh, Moses had his enemies, but the real enemy for them and us is Satan. Aside from the battle of our own flesh. But, but Satan hates Jesus, and therefore because he hates Jesus, he hates Jesus' sheep. He hates the flock. Now we would prefer that Jesus would prepare for us a table in Christian utopia. That's what, that's what all of Christendom in America is trying to create is a utopia that looks like one gigantic Christian bookstore with a worship conference in the center of it. But that's, not, that's not biblical Christianity. That's not what David lived. That's not what Paul lived. 
We would love a utopia where there's nothing but amazing worship, nonstop fellowship with amazing food, not fasting. No, we've been called to follow Jesus wherever he went. And wherever he went was desert. And ultimately, as we talked about Sunday, I am crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Zach and Lee just left here, and they had a good situation here. They weren't never going to ever get rich or anything here like that. But they, they've now gone in the stronghold of the enemy, a place where millions are in darkness. We have our own strongholds in America too. But, but they did it because they're following the footsteps of Jesus. That's where Jesus wants them to go. That's their valley. That's their table that's been set in the presence of not the Indian people. The Indian people are not the enemy. They're, they're souls that God wants to save. But there's still a work. Satan, that's why people are in dungeons in North Korea, because Satan hates the believers. But David exhibits here a pattern. He's come through valleys, and he's overcome fear. I really believe that verse 5 is David saying, I've come past the fear stage now. And I believe that some of us in this room, God wants to move us past the fear stage. He wants to move us out of verse 4 to place we're in verse 5. We're like Peter said, go ahead, crucify me upside down. That's where Peter had gotten to. He was not that way the night of the betrayal and the um, trial of Jesus. But David, it, it just kind of exhibits a, a pattern here. Coming through this valley, he's overcome fear by fixing his eyes on the staff of the shepherd. His confidence in the rod and the staff of God on his behalf has grown. He can now believe that the good shepherd has set the table. He believes that not only is the table in the presence of his enemies, but it's not there by chance. And he even has come to the place to believe that God put the table there and has set food on the table for him to actually eat in the present, this is actually a, a total 180 of faith for, for the, from the time we get saved. We don't think this way, right? But then we finally say, hey, this table God put here in the presence of all this craziness, in the presence of enemies, and I'm going to sit down at peace. He can now believe that the good shepherd set the table. He can eat relaxed in the face of intimidation. Relaxed in the face. It's like you know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer just sleeping like a baby the night before it's going to be executed or something. People, you see things like that. And here in enemy territory is where it's at this table in enemy territory, he says, I'm anointed with oil. That's pretty cool. In enemy territory, God says, that's where I'm going to anoint you. What? You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. He's anointed with oil and... That can be a great picture of healing oil. You and I can be healed and the place we would least expect to be healed. Say, Lord, if you let me go through this, I'll die. God said, if I let you go through that, you'll live and actually be healed. You'll be delivered of whatever it is that you're so afraid of. And it's a picture also of the oil of the Holy Spirit. In the middle of all that, David says, I can actually have my wounds healed and receive the power to enjoy at peace that table no matter what's going on around. Jesus was the only one that like, he knew everyone around to kill him and he could enjoy a meal with Lazarus, Martha, Mary, and everyone around wants to kill him. He could enjoy that table setting. In that, he wants to transfer that nature of him to us because we don't really have that unless he transfers it. He can transfer that peace, that power, and that confidence, which all results in a heart that sees. He says, my cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy, David came to the place where he could actually see in the middle of all that, he was seeing the overflow goodness of God's mercy. And that is an incredible source of true faith and true joy. Not the fake stuff. Faith and joy that says, I don't care about any of y'all. I'm going to sit right here because God has my back. I don't have that faith yet. But I get that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. If you're going to get that faith, it's going to be from believing this. And our final verse here, verse 6. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Finally, no matter how much the enemy holds up signs in your direction... You've probably seen some of these signs. Satan would love to hold up these signs. You're doomed. You're not going to make it. 
If God really cared, he wouldn't have put you in that valley or allowed that valley to come your way. If, if God really loved you, you wouldn't even have enemies. That's what Satan would tell you. If God loved you, you wouldn't have enemies. You wouldn't have hard days. You wouldn't have hard weeks. You wouldn't have hard years. If God really loved you, that's what Satan will tell us. They're all lies because David and Paul would say, no, no, God allowed this for us to gain the character of Jesus, the heart of Jesus, the, just the power of the Holy Spirit flowing. No, David... David becomes a sheep that has complete trust in the shepherd. Surely, surely, positively, goodness and mercy shall follow me. Doom is not going to follow me. I will not have a black cloud hanging over me everywhere I go. I meet Christians that talk like this. I'm like, you're reading from Satan's, you know, cue cards rather than the scriptures. No, David becomes this sheep that has this complete trust in his shepherd and the faithfulness of God. He has complete trust that God has brought him through and will continue to bring him back to green pastures, back to still waters, being restored in his soul more than once, being restored again, reset the table in the presence of enemies. No doubt a repeating pattern, but I also believe that he really is overcoming some of the things that might have hindered him at some time. His faith is becoming so rooted that he's focused on the goodness and mercy of the shepherd leading him, not the trouble, not the troubles that could be buffeting him. Let me say that again. Focus on the shepherd leading him, not the troubles that could be buffeting him. His eyes were fixed on the rod and staff, not everything else. He trusted that staff would, would be between him and whatever God allowed. And he's able to live victoriously on earth, and genuinely look forward to heaven. He says, and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I mean, you can't be so heavenly minded, you know, earthly good. That cliche makes no sense. If you are heavenly minded, you will actually be earthly good. Whoever came up with that one, I'm... Anyway. But this is how Jesus wants to lead us all. These six verses. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you again for this time in your word. Lord, we want to be led by you, our good shepherd. Lord, I pray I couldn't, we could spend days on these passages, Lord, but I pray that you would allow us, very simply, all of us here, to literally look to your rod and your staff. And Lord, that everything we would do, uh, we would not only have the faith that you are maturing our faith, and Lord, you want to increase our joy, and you want to deliver us from fear or doubt or discouragement or depression or whatever it may be, but Lord, you want to restore our soul, but all that we would have a testimony for your name's sake. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a good rest of the night.